So hello and welcome to this Stevenson Harwood Life Sciences podcast. I'm Tom Page, a partner in the corporate finance team here. And next to me is Christian Cheersby, another corporate finance partner. And we both have a, a specialism in the life sciences sector. And we're delighted to be joined today by uh, Vadim Alexander, Head of Healthcare at SP Angel, and by Corporate Finance Director Matthew Johnson from SP Angel. Welcome both. Thank you. Hi there. So today's discussion, uh, we'll look at some of the current trends in the life sciences sector, um, and in, in the public markets particularly. So we hope it will be of interest to you know, existing listed life sciences companies and also life sciences companies who are thinking of raising money in the public markets um, and hopefully of general interest to life science sector practitioners as well. So if that is uh, you, please do do listen on. And I think I'll, I'll kick off with a, um, a general question about just the state of uh, the public markets in the sector. Obviously, the, the headlines... And the headline numbers are not great, um, but is there more to the story? Um, is there more to the story, Vadim? Yeah, I mean, I guess it's it's probably worth going through a little bit of a of history in 2021, 22. You know, terrible years in the market. Uh, effectively, you know, a combination of multiple macro events, post-COVID, uh, supply chain issues, labor disruption, zero COVID in China, uh, war, energy prices, all that leading to a burst in inflation globally. Uh, and then a corresponding interest rate cycle, aggressive you know, interest rate uh, increases by central banks across the world. So that has basically you know, created a risk-off scenario. Uh, in, in, that, in that context, what happens to biotech is it's the first place where risk uh, leaves you know it's a it's a high risk high return sector so when, when we have a risk off environment like we have right now um, that's uh, that's the place that gets hit the hardest uh, and we've seen it you know what does that translate into it translates into share price declines a shut a closed capital market so the the IPO market is shut um, secondary fundraisers have been reduced drastically and uh, investment into the sector has collapsed essentially okay so that's the that's the negative overview uh, we are no longer in 2022, and we're in a new year, and with it come some green shoots. Now, we've had several false rallies in 2022, so it's hard to say whether this is just another false, you know, false rally or not. We, we don't know yet. Uh, but it does look different to the previous rallies that we've had. So we had one in August 2022, and that was very aggressive, and everyone thought it could be the end. It wasn't. Uh, it kept going down. Uh, but admittedly, the um, the turbulence hadn't ended. So all the factors we just described were still unwinding. There was still inflation was still going up, interest rates were still going up drastically to fight it. Whereas all these other all those factors are starting to taper now. Uh, we now know that, or it feels genuinely like interest rates are under control. It feels like sorry, um, inflation's under control. Interest rates are are that are tapering off, still increasing but tapering off. Um, and uh, the impending recession feels like it's going to be less aggressive, if at all. So, you know, in the UK, we, we see we're, we're, we're dabbling with, into a recession, if you like, but we 
have just been told by the central bank that uh, it's going to be less deep and less long. In the U.S., we don't know whether there's going to be a recession. The jobs, the latest jobs report was uh, uh, stellar. Uh, 500,000 plus jobs were created on against expectations of 100,000 jobs. So my, my point is all the macro features are actually going away now. They're not completely resolved, but we can see the end, the light at the end of the tunnel on all of them. And the corresponding rally in stocks has been very aggressive since the beginning of January. And it's starting to get reflected in biotech and healthcare and life sciences shares. Um, what I would say about the UK in particular is we have an echo uh, to the US. So call it six months. It's not perfect. It's not a perfect correlation, but it isn't one for one. It isn't, you know, we're not, we, our markets do not move in parallel. They move with a slight delay. And the NASDAQ Biotech Index, which is kind of the barometer um, globally uh, for the life sciences sector, has rallied substantially. It's, it hit after hitting highs of 5,600 uh, in 20 late 21, they came all the way down to 3,300, and now we're at 4,300. So we've had about a 33% rally from the bottom. That bodes well for, the, for, for everyone, and it bodes well for UK life sciences, because that, that inevitably will come here. And we are seeing since, you know, certain stocks start to bounce off, off their, their lows. Uh, still a long way to go, and hopefully we're at the. Hopefully everything I'm saying pans out to be this is not a fake uh, uh, rally, but uh, uh, the end of the the bottom of the cycle, if you like. And if that is the case, then we're hoping to see an IPO market reopen in 2024. It always takes a bit of time, but with that in mind, it, you know IPOs take time to prepare. It, you know, we're already in the lead times. We're nearing the lead times to start preparing for a 2024 IPO market. That's our hope. Uh, I hope I'm right. <laughs> and I hope that um, the, uh, but certainly all the signs are very different this time around since the beginning of this year. Thanks, Vadim. That's very interesting. Um, so you mentioned the, um, the sort of the green shoots of recovery, and you also mentioned the lead time for an IPO. If you're a, a life sciences company considering a, IPO in late 2023 or early 2024, what, what can they be doing now to ensure that they can take maximum advantage of a, an IPO window once it arrives? Yeah, okay, maybe, maybe I'll go that one. I, th- I think with any IPO, it's, it's all about the preparation. So uh, IPOs, it can take a long time to, um, to get there, to actually list. So anything that these companies can start doing early in the process is, is going to be a big help. And I'm thinking of, of things like making sure... Uh, they're starting to talk to um, non-execs, so they, they have a good-looking board by the time they get to talk to advisors, because that, that can often take quite a bit of time to recruit the right people to join the board. Uh, I'm also thinking of things like um, making sure that um, all, the, all the tax reliefs that they've hopefully got are sort of uh, up to date and that we can use um, the EIS VCT uh, relief at IPO to, to help there, um, which can be a massive benefit. Uh, and things like, you know, it's uh, all perhaps slightly more mundane stuff like, the you know, start thinking about financial controls and systems, all that sort of good stuff that uh, a PLC needs to have in place um, when it joins the market. And, you know, and, you may, and also start, start looking across the, you know, the, the advisor base, making sure you've got the right, the right auditors on board that can help, help deliver this kind of thing, the right lawyers, of course, you know, and then, then you can choose your, uh, your broker and nomad if, if, you, if you're headed for the AIM markets. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that, that's 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 the kind of you know those those are the top things that people should be considering. I mean, you know, and it's also working working on the pitch as well. I think, um, 
start thinking about how you're going to present the opportunity to the markets. That's something we spend quite a lot of time working with clients on. Yeah. And, and I mean, sort of within the sector, are there particular subsectors you think that there'll be more appetite for earlier than others, Vadim? It's, it's always hard to tell. The, the, historically, there has been this kind of um, uh, balance in, in healthcare or, or as a, or an overarching sector. Uh, and the, the, the balance was uh, when biotech is strong, medtech is less strong. And when medtech is strong, biotech is less strong. I don't see that right now yet. We haven't seen that reversal. So both were strong during COVID, um, but in particular biotech. Uh, and so when the COVID boom ended, if you like, well, it's a boom in healthcare because for obvious reasons during COVID. But when that COVID, um, when 22 came along and risk uh, appetite um, went away, both sectors collapsed essentially. So the, the entire healthcare sector was uh was in a was in a downturn. So this time around, it feels like both sectors will come out similarly. Uh, there are there are some new things that we're seeing. Is AI is definitely definitely coming on stream for real now. Uh, you know, five years ago, everyone was talking about AI and med tech, and it wasn't really delivering. Whereas now, it's actually delivering clinical results. That you know, it's 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 generating clinical benefit, uh, and particularly in areas like imaging, for example. Um, you can imagine how AI-powered uh, imaging analysis uh, algorithms are far more powerful than, than they could ever have been. So th- th- we are seeing AI-powered medtech as, as a new s- a subsector of medtech that's gaining a lot of attention. And I think that's, that might be a, a subsector that might be of particular interest in the next IPO cycle. And interesting. And, and, and if you were taking uh, an AI medtech company on the road, would you be introducing them to sort of tech-specific investors or life science-specific investors or, or both? I think um, the two sectors are, are funny in that they, 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 they don't meet very, even though they're very, they overlap in terms of technology a lot. Tech investors recognize the difficulties that healthcare, the, you know, the, the obstacles are very different to a tech business uh, because of all of the clinical trial uh, pathway and the regulatory pathway. So, uh, they don't often uh, they don't often overlap actually the investor bases. I mean it, it's true that people who invest in one space there, there are many investors that invest in both spaces, but they recognize the companies as the two separate sectors and they know the parameters of what they're looking for in healthcare companies. It's, it's specifically to do with regulatory. You know what I mean? It, it's a complete different risk profile to commercial success as a tech company. Yeah. I don't think we'll see a repeat of 2021 uh, as we saw with uh, in healthcare because of the COVID crisis. Um, but some normalization. If now it's effectively shut, and I'd like to, you know, I'd like to think it would reopen somewhat uh, by 24. Uh, certainly, if if the if this rally continues and all those macro features tr- truly do normalize, you know, it, it, there's still a danger that there are some some macro shock surprises. You know, the war was completely unanticipated, but even there, energy prices have stabilized. You know, that all seems to be normalizing. And in that environment, you know, we've just we were just looking uh, uh, at the business cycle for the last 25 years um, and it just repeats itself like clockwork. There's always an aggressive rally following a steep decline like this. Um, and then it, it always comes back and, and then beats the previous peak. You know, it's just it's, it just always happens that way. 
And it, well, at least it has done so for three or four business cycles in a row um, in biotech. Yeah, although we should say as always that past events, of course, are no guide to future. <laughs> of course. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and so that's IPOs. And then in terms of existing listed companies uh, looking to raise money um, you know, on the secondary market, is that effectively closed in the same way or, or, or is there scope? That's actually that, the good point. That is part of the green shoots that we're seeing. So we just did a, a small capital raise not too long ago in January. Uh, which was probably unthinkable three mo- just three months ago. Uh, so the secondaries of it for, are, are coming back. Um, and less uh, with less discounts. Uh, again, it's early days, right? It's only one month, one and a half months of data. Um, but so far, we've seen a few placings done. Not a, The ones that were done in the second half of last year were steeply discounted placings, whereas now they're a bit more sensibly priced. Uh, so another sign that uh, you know, things are improving. So I think for the start of 2023, we're expecting to see a greater uptick in the um, prevalence of M&A in the sector in particular, given that some of the large farmers are looking for innovative uh, new technologies and the smaller companies out there looking for uh, capital and suffering with liquidity issues. Do you see 2023 as a year of increased M&A activity in the sector? Yeah, M and A is is always tricky uh, in that all the all the features are there, all the ingredients are there. You're absolutely correct. So um, the capital that was raised in 2021 is running out for many of these companies. So they are hitting the wall in some respects. Uh, you know, or cash runways are they can see the end of their cash run, runways, so they're getting a little more um, uh, nervous. And capital markets as we've just described, haven't recovered yet uh, fully. Um, so yeah, uh, there is another route, which is M&A. Um, and certainly parties who are looking for assets are getting those assets cheaper as a result, and they are getting higher quality assets. Uh, there's more access There's more access to higher quality assets because those, those assets are for sale now. Um, but we just haven't seen it yet. We haven't seen that that burst of deals, uh, that, or you know, or forced forced sales or gone. I just it just hasn't happened, and it feels like the cycle is turning fast. Fast, you know. So what we see towards the end of cash runways is the ability to stretch it out further. Do you know what I mean? People can wind down costs. They can delay programs. They can shut secondary programs. All kinds of ways to stretch out that that runway. Uh, and if the markets are improving, there's more incentive to stretch them out rather than fire sell the assets, right? So it's hard to say what's going to yeah. happen. I, th- I think anecdotally, we have we have heard some clients that have seen more in the way of distressed opportunities, put it that way, sort of come across their desks. So assets, as, as, as Vadim says, that are you know perhaps running out of runway and looking for another home. So I think there's a bit more of that around, um, certainly than there was, shall we say, six months ago. Mm-hmm. I was just going to add to that. I think where we would see more of a crunch is if this continued for six to twelve more months. Then it would be completely different. You know that then it, it be, the situation becomes acute. It's not quite acute. <laughs> it's still manageable. Uh, in a year's time, it would be it would be pretty bad. I think. And the thing is that but buyers know that, right? So it, I think it's still a situation where a buyer is taking you know, a, sl- a slight leap of faith on valuation, right? Because there's still significant downside potential. 
they can just sit at sit and wait, right? It's it's exactly it's it's a bit of a it's a bit of a catch twenty two. They can sit and wait, but what if the markets recover? And they are seeing that some of the steeply discounted placings uh, done late last year were probably targets for some, and then all of a sudden, turns out they raised money, so now they have runway. You know, yes, punishing punish uh, at punishing prices to existing investors, but you know, they 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 the. So let's say if there were buyers, you know, in the shadows, they they they're no longer there because they know that that company is not going to sell now. Mm. So, so Vadim, you mentioned Nasdaq um, at, at the outset, and I know from talking to you before, you you have some very interesting points to make on AIM versus Nasdaq, and there was obviously a a phase maybe in twenty one um, at its peak uh, of companies here dreaming of Nasdaq. <laughs> Which may or may not have been realistic, um, but I don't, what, what are your thoughts on you know life sciences companies looking across the Atlantic? Yeah, I mean the market there has changed too, right? So the the IPO market there is uh, maybe slightly reopening. It's not really open, so they've gone, at, but but they've suffered steeper declines. Their IPOs from the last cycle are down, on average, lower than the IPOs here. So it's uh, it isn't uh, you know. It, Looking backwards, it hasn't been the, the panacea that it was supposed to be uh, from the outset, but admittedly from higher levels. And that was why a lot of UK businesses were looking to the US because the valuations were so much higher. And that was indeed the case. And historically and to date and still today, valuations are higher in the US than, than anywhere else, uh, but, but higher than here, than listed companies here in the UK for similar stage assets and similar quality assets. Um, so that's, I think that's the draw, uh, and it is real. The problem with the listing in the U.S. is it's easier said than actually than done in, in that one of the prereq- prerequisites in a functioning market. Right now, it's not functioning either side of the Atlantic, so it, it, it's irrelevant today. But let's say both markets become functional in a year's time. They will always be priced higher. I, it's just I've, I've never seen it different. It's always been the case. In real boom markets, like in the last boom market, the differential was even was it, the dif- the differential grows. So the uh, it becomes all the more attractive to list there because you know some assets were priced ten times the valuation you get here, and that's you know that's appealing for people selling their shares, right? The thing is, the biggest problem in the U.S. is it's a big market and it's a noisy market, and standing out there is very difficult. And what that translates into for an IPO is that you have to be a bigger company. So you, you can't necessarily just invent being bigger. You know, you have to be a certain, of a certain stage, of a certain caliber, etc. And if you are not that, then you cannot list on NASDAQ. And I think, you know, t- towards the end of the boom, you had to be probably about a billion dollar company to register with investors there. Uh, and that's, that's a big company. That's a big, you know, admittedly, your, your, your assets are priced more because you've got inflated asset pricing, which is top of the cycle type uh, um, valuations. But nonetheless, a billion dollars, you, you know, you have to be worth a billion or somewhere near that to, to register amongst investors in a crowded market in the US. And, and to make that IPO market work, you, you would hope that the shares rally afterwards. So, uh, you, you have to be that. And if you're not that, then what do you do? Well, that's where the UK markets are actually quite good and quite sophisticated for companies that are sub $1 billion. Particularly AIM, uh, you have 
you'd be hard pressed to find. First of all, you can't list on the Nasdaq unless you're of that size. You'll you'll you, you know if you're say two three hundred million market cap business, you could mechanically list on Nasdaq, but your shares will probably quickly be ignored by the market and start declining. Okay. And then once you start declining on NASDAQ, it's very difficult to come out of uh, in, in that once you're down in the weeds, you know, in the sub 100 million market cap business, uh, the, the exchange often forces you to delist after having paid ridiculous sums of money to list. It's a lot more expensive to list on NASDAQ as well than to list on AIM. But, you know, if you are, say, a company that's hell-bent on listing on NASDAQ in the, in, in the long run, AIM is a great middle, middle market. And you would, you, you know, it doesn't in no way prohibits you from listing on NASDAQ down the line. And we've seen many examples of, of companies dual listing. Uh, in fact, recently, Amrit Pharma was a good case, uh, case in point, textbook success story of using AIM as a platform and listing on NASDAQ down the line. Amrit, you know, listed on AIM, I think even via reverse seven years ago um, as a 50 million or sub 50 million market cap business. Uh, seven years of development, dual listing on NASDAQ, and then trade sale uh, for $1.4 billion. I mean, that's not a bad seven-year run using both markets. And, and, you know, one example, and there's examples of not, so, not quite so successful, you know, dual listings. But my main point is that if you are, and many, many healthcare companies are, in that sub-1 billion market cap, and even, you can go even lower, sub-300 million, sub-500 million market cap business, Definitely, you shouldn't be listing on NASDAQ, and definitely, you'll have a very warm reception on AIM. You know, AIM is really good from the, you know, 10 to 20 up to 500, and then you can start contemplating the dual listing and, and leveraging the benefits of, of what NASDAQ brings. So I, I think, I mean, any other points on that? I, I, no, no, I, I think that's right. I mean, it's, it, it, you know, and we, we have seen UK companies just get lost on NASDAQ. I mean, it's, yeah. it, I'm afraid it happens. And um you know, they can be promised the earth and, and it doesn't quite work out like that. And, uh, you know, and over, over here in the UK, there are, you know, they're actually, I think the US um, companies are sometimes surprised that, you know, we've got the same investors here and they will, some of these bigger blue chip investors will invest smaller amounts into smaller companies on AIM. Whereas over in the States, uh, they'd be writing much bigger tickets and looking at bigger companies. So I think yeah, it's the same universe of investors here in many ways. So there's you know, lots of positives. Exactly. Companies like BlackRock and Fidelity in the U.S. won't look at sub 300 million market cap businesses. Here they will. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, um, it works the other way with uh, in the U.S. companies are welcome to come here and list on names. So I, I've no doubt that um, this podcast will be listened to by people across the states. But if they are um, if they are tuning in and thinking we can't yet raise money on NASDAQ, then very much it's the case. And I think the stock exchange is very keen, aren't they, to attract um, US companies to list here, perhaps first as a, sep- a stepping stone. Absolutely. And, and we are, uh, we have listed several companies, uh, US companies here. Uh, it's been a, a massive success in, in that they are exactly in that uh, sweet spot of 50 million market cap businesses, 50 to 100 million market cap businesses uh, looking to grow them, uh, you know, to, to grow out of being a small cap business, more becoming a mid cap business, and then eventually returning to the US. So um, thank you very much, um, Vadim and Matthew. That's very, very interesting discussion. And just, um, I mean, I think the themes to pick out there are obviously things at the moment are still... Um, pretty much frozen like like the season over here but uh green shoots is the phrase that um i've heard 
twice today and valuations are hopefully bottoming out and this rally is hopefully sustainable and given lead times etc of IPOs if we're a company looking to come to the market here here in London then 2024 even back end of 2023 is if everything moves in the right direction very much a possibility and um, as Matthew would say it's never too early to start thinking about uh, getting yourself in shape for an IPO um, and certainly if you're looking at 2024 now is the time to um, to start thinking about it and particularly who your advisors are going to be yeah absolutely definitely and for those US biotech companies and early early stage startups in the life sciences sector who are looking for capital or a route to market, then there's always the aim market for them to consider if NASDAQ doesn't appear to be suitable. There we are. Well, thank you both very much. Thank you. Thank you very thank much. You.